Hey everyone, hey and welcome back to yet another episode of Alpha Metallica. This is your host, Tom Quee here. As always, you can follow the show at MetallicaPod. Get in touch with me, MetallicaPod at gmail.com. Normally, what we're doing on this show, as I'm sure you know, maybe it's your first time listening, is we're going through the entire back catalogue of Metallica in alphabetical order. The last song that we did at the time of recording this was number 90. That was Merciful Fate which I tackled solo, go back and check that episode out, go back and check out all the episodes that we do, all the, you know, the gig reviews, the recaps, the top 10 riffs and solos, there's a whole plethora of content, and and amidst that panoply are slight deviations from the Alpha Delica remit, we have interviews on with various people who are associated with Metallica in any way, we've had Martin Popoff on way back in the day, we did Am I Evil, we had Paul Brannigan on to talk about Birth School Metallica Death, we've had Fleming Rasmussen on, We've had Ray Burton, you know, we've had a ton of people. And today is no different. Today I am joined by the author of one of the definitive Metallica books, one that has certainly been a Bible for me throughout the recording of these shows, one that I constantly refer back to. Lars himself called it very professional on the front quote on the cover. And not only has my guest today, my guest Joel McIver, written Justice for All, The Truth About Metallica, he has written tons of biographies on bands such as Tool, Black Sabbath, Thunder, Rage Against the Machine, Slayer, Machine Head, and Cliff Burton even. He is also current editor of Bass Guitar Magazine. Joel, how's it going? It's going really well. I'm just listening to myself in that intro and thinking, how the hell do I fit all that in? <laughs> I know you've written so many books. Like It really is inspiring. Like Going on Amazon, I was clicking next and next. It's admirable. Well, there's about 31 now. and uh, But th- admittedly, that is over a 20-year period. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like I did them all in a minute. Um, and uh, uh, as well as that 31, there's about 100 other volumes in, in different languages as well. So I've got the, this giant bookshelf here um, with, with pretty much everything on there that occasionally I sort of cast a glance at and think, how the hell did I get all that stuff done? But uh, somehow it gets done. Going back then, is it right that you were 17 when you first got into Metallica? A friend played you Master of Puppets? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was quite late, actually. And I want to give um, full credit to that friend, uh, his name was John Hoare, mm. and he played bass um, uh, in more recent years in a, in a fairly successful band, a power metal band called uh, Mercury Rain. They were really right. good. You should check them out. Mm. And uh, he was uh, my neighbor, and he was way more into metal, or way more, well, he was into metal, and I wasn't. Um, I used to listen to Duran Duran and all this stuff, right, which right. I still like, I still quite like. Sure, yeah. But, um, and then, yes, when I was 17, which was 1988, so fairly late to get into mm. Metallica. Um, he played me Master of Puppets and it just destroyed me. I mean, it just blew my mind. Um, I had never really listened to much metal before that. I had kind of seen the odd video clip, you know, of, of Ozzy Osbourne and stuff and Wasp and whatever and just thought it was hilarious and pathetic. Yeah. Um, and I was the one who, who had the stupid prejudice because obviously the stuff is amazing. And uh, I, I, it just completely took over. Um, and I started learning the bass at about that time, bit of guitar, straight into all the thrash metal bands. <clears throat> then it was death metal and then that was it you know the rest was the rest was history so yes it was my good buddy john who got whose fault it is right and and so you were justice was coming out around that time like had you gone back like how were you getting more familiar with the back catalogue of metallica so the first thing that came out um as i was awaiting it was the uh, garage daisy EP. Well, of course yeah uh, so yeah it was either just coming out or it was just out and uh i got that and i loved it so much i thought jason's playing was amazing um, and and the, the fact that that EP is sort of underproduced really appealed to me. I yeah. still think it's one of the best production jobs they ever had. Absolutely. Ironically, ironically enough. Yeah. Um, 
Justice came out in 88, yep, so I was, I was into them then and really looking forward to it. And that immediately didn't strike me as having the balls of the EP um, and, and of the, the previous albums, which I had then gone back and got into. So Puppets blew my mind, Lightning blew my mind. Kill Em All, I thought, whoa, this is really scratchy and kind of garage level and really mm. poorly produced. And uh, I, I didn't really get into it that much. Although subsequently, of course, I realised that you know what a what, what an incredible piece of work it is for teenagers, basically. And yeah, that was my start really with Metallica, and uh, I just went back, and I also went back and really, really got into all the other great metal bands that I'd missed out on because I was listening to Duran Duran. Um, in the way that uh, you know how um, people who convert to something are much more kind of zealous about it than people who grow up with it. Yeah, um, I was like that. You know, I was really, really, um, really into it in a sort of not an unhealthy degree, but a way that really took over for a good sort of. I don't know, five years of my life probably when I was when I was growing up and being a student. Um, and then weirdly, in the 1990s, I continued to listen to that stuff, but I got really heavily into dance music and all and all the you know and Britpop and all that mm-hmm. other stuff. And um, and 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 then subsequently, it's just but I listen to everything really now. Um, you know, you, you I think it's pretty healthy to listen to all sorts of different stuff. But you know, I'll still revert to the to the Master of Puppets and the Rain and Blood and you know all those kind of classic records that defined uh, the, the late 80s, mid 80s for people of our age. Um, but, and that all led to writing, to writing mm. about the stuff for a living. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, just as much as we're, uh, personally, as I'm, I'm fascinated with Metallica, I love music criticism in yeah. all its forms. So what was that journey for you? Am I right in thinking you were sort of doing freelance reviews and that led to Record Collector? Yeah, that's right, man. You've really done your research. Yeah, <laughs> I've I, read a few blogs, like yeah. I, after my degree, I didn't really know what I was going to do, so I did a bit of teaching of English as a foreign language, like mm-hmm. so many people do, yeah. and uh, did a bit of sort of freelance writing here and there. Um, but it wasn't until I got a job on Record Collector magazine that it became a serious thing. I was a staffer on that mag, which is quite a sort of respected magazine. Yeah, definitely. Super, super geeky. It's good fun. It was, mm-hmm. it was a good place to work. Some of the people on that mag were a bit mental, but that's life. Yeah, um, and I had a good time there. It was a real sort of boot camp um, that taught me how to edit, how to commission people, you know, how to write actually. Um, and I did that from 1999 to 2005. Um, at which point, funny enough, the Metallica book was a bestseller, and I jacked it, jacked in my job um, because that's what happens when you have a big successful book. You know, book deals uh, sort of queue up, publishers queue up, I should say, to offer you book deals. Um, and that was the start of me working from home, which I've now been doing for um, 14 years. And uh, I, it suits me; it really does. I love it. Like you know, I find it productive. I get a lot done. Not wasting time commuting. I get to see my kids mm-hmm. when they're. You know, it, it works for me. So um, here we are, and I'm an ancient, ancient person. But uh, it's been a lot of fun, I have to say. And the Metallica book, though, wasn't your first book. I mean, no, it's my fifth. You, you know. did it. You did an A to Z, which is something that's close to my heart of extreme metal. I did. That book was just called um, Extreme Metal, and mm. uh, it actually seems like a bit of a crap idea now. But when I when I when I was commissioned to do it in 1999, you did not have uh, and you, you didn't have Wikipedia, and you certainly you barely had an internet that yeah. was that was informative. You know that clearly people were using the web and using email, but it wasn't such a uh, it wasn't yet overtaking books and magazines as an authoritative source of information. Um, so the idea then of of doing a print uh, encyclopedia was much more viable than it would be now. Um, and I had this idea, and because Record Collector was a respected publication. 
um, I had on my side the advantage that people, publishers would listen to me a bit more readily than they would do anyone else. Um, so that book got done and it was a reasonably successful book. I was really pleased with it. The, the publishers, Omnibus Press, for whom I've subsequently written another 12 or 13 books, mm-hmm. um, did a great job on it. They made it look a bit like a graphic novel. It was really cool. Right. I, I still remember my wife uh, getting the first copy and phoning me up, really excited, telling me it looked great. And um, <clears throat> that was the first one. Yeah, so that, that, that did have Metallica in it. Um, uh, because the idea was to write within the extreme metal genre about thrash, death, black, and doom metal, and obviously they they, they qualify. Um, whether they do now is a whole other <laughs> whole other whole other argument. The internet has led to that fragmentation of the subcultures that wasn't really existing back then. You could be a bit more um, definitive. But getting into the Metallica yeah. book, then I mean, yeah. I'm I'm a huge fan, as I'm sure you are, of just musical biographies in general and biographers. Like I love yes, Barney. So- they're well done. I mean, I, I yeah. have my favourites. You mentioned Martin Popoff earlier. Yes. Who's a really good friend of mine and a, and a real example to me, actually. Yeah, he's um, amazing. So, yeah. So when you, when you get someone like that uh, sort of blazing the trail, as Martin did, um, then you've got some big boots to fill. And the other um, uh, author whose work I've always admired is Mick Wall, of course. who himself did a brilliant Metallica book some years mm-hmm. after mine. Um, and uh, actually, with I've just done a, spent a year doing a podcast with him. Yes. And uh, so, uh, so I guess if you want to talk about that book, then um, the reason why I did it was that there was no large format, proper sized book in 2003 when I thought of it um, that, that existed, which is amazing to think about now. They were already at the St. Anger era and no one had done a, a proper big doorstop of a book. There, had, there was a thing called Frayed Ends of Sanity, I think. There, and was, there, were, there was also one called Metallica Unbound. I don't know if so you're familiar with that one. So that's a good book. Yeah. And that's by uh, KJ... KJ uh, Delton, yeah. And he's, I've, I've, I've spoken to him a lot over the years. He's a really nice guy as mm. well. And his was, the, his was the only real printed authority, uh, sort of authoritative book at the time. Um, try to think what else there was. There, might, there was a Metallica in their own words, you know, little yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't a proper massive analytical book, and mine was massive. You know, it was one hundred and fifty thousand oh, yeah. words. Um, and I, I had to sell this idea to Omnibus. I remember quite um, diligently, and they, in the end, they went for it. In two thousand and four, no, wait, in two thousand and two, I would have written it because um, I remember clearly because it came out in '03, because that's the year when my daughter Alice was born, right. um, and the book is dedicated to her. So, um, because she she arrived like a you know a week after it was finished or something like that, I had to really really uh, I had to really sort of hurry up you know mm-hmm. to get it done in time. Anyway, yeah. So uh, that was so I guess in two thousand and two was when the deal was signed. So back then, yeah, there just wasn't a book. So it was a case of isolating an opportunity and looking for a market um, and doing the band justice as much as I possibly could uh, in an in an unauthorized book. Um, but people just lined up to be interviewed for it. Um, I think I did a hundred interviews or something. Um, I, I got a hold of pretty much everybody. I'd already interviewed. Um, I'm sure I interviewed Lars and James at that point. Um, so I, I could I could refer to those interviews that I had I had done with them. Um, Tom uh, Tom Gabriel Fisher, uh, then of Celtic Frost, or later of Celtic Frost, now of Trypticon, did an amazing foreword mm-hmm. which was full of appreciation. Um, and that book came out really, really well. It came out so well, and it was a bestseller in a couple of territories, notably Finland, which is an incredibly heavy metal country, yeah. um, and and did really, really well. Quickly sold 50,000 copies in like 12 languages, and it's probably maxed out at this point, I would think, um, although people are still buying it, which I know because I get royalties from it twice a year. Nice. Uh, 
which which is nice yeah, yeah. and uh, and uh, so yeah and it's been reprinted tons of times it just keeps going that book and and structurally in, in terms yeah. of writing a book like this obviously you've done so many of them so you probably have a method like do you do it you know kind of straight through do you do multiple chapters at once do you keep coming back adding quotes um so this is non-fiction so i try to do um these biographies in chronological order it doesn't have to be that way um, and you can break up the chronology with various think pieces or think chapters as i did with my slayer book from a few years later right. um and you can be you can be thematic rather than chronological if you will if you wish i've done that a couple of times um but with metallica the story was so big and it was so important to as it was going to be the first big book on them uh, to to do it clearly and well i decided just to tell the story from the beginning um but i did throw in every now and then a chapter devoted to a popular myth about them yes um, which seems a little bit shallow thinking now but at the time it seemed to make sense um it, it, not shallow it seemed to overthink it a little bit i think now when i think about it but nonetheless the results were good so i did a bit of investigating into cliff's death for example um so the idea behind that was that uh you know the received wisdom tells us that the bus skidded on black ice um and cliff was thrown from the bus and died and so i managed to you know i tracked down i tracked down the first guy on the scene who was the photographer from the local newspaper um who photographed it and he was adamant that there was no black ice mm. um, which indicates that it must have been a, a malfunction of the bus or an error on the part of the driver so i spoke to the person who employed that driver and that was someone at music for nations um who uh, was very helpful up to the point where i asked for the identity of the driver and wisely i guess on his part decided to stonewall me a bit there sure. um but that's that's still something that i would love to discover i mean that that's a mystery um and i wrote to i wrote to the police in Ljungby, which is the town in sweden where cliff died and they told me they lost all the records i still have the um I still have the letter from the, the chief of police there, who said they'd literally mislaid all the records of his death. Amazing, uh, which blows my mind. Yeah. Um, and I got all the I got all this done with the with the help, uh, with the sort of translating help of a Swedish author who I know. Um, and so that's an example of one of the the sort of myth chapters, as I called them. And one other, which I'll tell you about, which you, you must know about, was the Napster chapter. Mm -hmm. um, the idea when I wrote the book in two thousand and two. Uh, the whole Napster uh, sort of debacle was very fresh in people's minds. And Lars uh, was really being demonized for his role in that. And I, I took what I like to think, and I flatter myself, was a, a fairly progressive view on the subject and ahead of the curve, which was to say, as we now say, that he was he was right yeah. to, try, to try and protect the band's intellectual copyright. Um, because nowadays... In the streaming era, the legal streaming era, um, when we understand how difficult it is for copyright holders to make money out of their art, um, it seems completely obvious that, that, that stealing stuff is wrong. Um, although a lot of people do it, but the fact is that it's, it's frowned upon, right, when there are legal alternatives. Now, Napster, as most people don't remember, uh, or, or because they were too young to know about at the time, in 1999, Napster provided a super, super efficient way to get free music with no payments of any kind, tra you know, traveling anywhere. And Lars was among the very, very few musicians to be brave enough to stick his head above the parapet and say, I object to this and we will take you on. Um, and because Metallica had the financial muscle to be able to do that, um, that battle was won. And, uh, you know, much as I understood 
the the sort of the the, the punk appeal of Napster going in and, and taking on these giant record companies. Uh, at the same time, as a creative myself, I understand the importance of, of copyright and what it means. So Lars was completely right, and I took the, at the time, unpopular view of supporting him in that. Um, so that was one of the things I attempted to address, and I like to think that that particular chapter turned out well. So I had a lot of fun with this, as you can imagine. It was a lot of work, you know. I mean, that band, uh, you know, there was, there was 20 years of history yeah. at the time. There's like 35 years of history yeah. now. It'd be a much, much bigger book. But um, I did my best to get it all done in 150,000 words. And I think uh, a few perhaps overstrong opinions aside, uh, I did a good job. I probably wouldn't have gone in as hard. Nowadays, if I was writing that book, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have um, slated them as hard as I did for Load and Reload and then later St. Anger. Uh, but at the time, I was, you know, I was 29 and, you know, full of vim and full of... <laughs> I want to talk about the the load and reload chapters yeah. because I think this is one of the huge individual markers of the book and structurally I should say anyone that's not familiar with the book first of all if you listen to this podcast definitely buy this book if you haven't read it it's a, it's a terrific read and essentially it goes between um, you know chapters which are named after years where you go through chronologically to the myth chapters you say so we have the truth about fresh metal which is chapter five and the truth about Cliff Burn truth about Master of Puppets truth about Cliff's death about uh, Black Album the truth about load and reload and I was reading lots of Amazon reviews uh, while I should have been working today of your book and they all make the same point they all make the point that this is a book of two halves essentially and when it gets to the post Black Album stuff you are incredibly harsh and as I said to you off air I'm kind of a little bit, I appreciate you're not really in the Metallica podcast world, but I'm a little bit of a pariah really in the scene because I kind of low-key despise Load and Reload. I don't even hate them for the deviation or because they're country or could they're southern or whatever. I just don't think they're very well written. I don't think they're very <laughs> imaginative, you know what I mean? That, that was my point in the book. It's yeah. not... It's not the artistic bravery that is a problem. It's the fact that the songs aren't very good. Yeah. And um, that's a simple fact. And, yeah, I know people – I think it's a generational thing, actually. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 48, so I remember fondly the thrash metal stuff. Um, one of my good friends is Terry Beezer, who runs the uh, That's Not Metal okay. uh, podcast. Bit of a legend in the industry. And he is, is the polar opposite. He loves Load and Reload to the point, you know, where, where we will argue all day and all night about this stuff. Mm. And I, I – I get it. It's not for me to say no one must like this music, sure. uh, but I, I feel there are really strong reasons not to like it. I can't. I really cannot abide those records. They're not aging well. It's not like they've become classics 20 years after the fact. Yeah. Um, I will say that there's a couple of good songs on either album, but I think a lot of it is just dross, and uh, it's a real shame to this day. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm 26 myself, so I wasn't in the, the fresh era. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah or anything like that i've always thought they were pretty watery and insipid and and just yeah. sort of you know going nowhere but i we will disagree john on a certain point and again sure. it's, it's a thing that marks me out as a bit of an outcast in metallica world i actually really like say anger as an album i actually think it's a pretty good record yeah. i've so i've met people who like it and mm. i i understand that i understand if you like the kind of uh, raw edges mm. Um, and there are a couple of good moments. I quite like the end of, um, is it called All Within My Hands? Yes, I, I noted that you liked that, and that's one of my favourites, yeah. It's a, it's a cool sort of threatening doom part, which I like. Mm. And there, there are moments, a couple of intros here and there. Sweet Amber's not a bad song. Yeah. But, um, oh man, I, I, just, I just can't stand that record, apart from those bits. It's just, and one of the, it's, it's, one of the, it's the first Metallica record 
uh, that I that where I think they just gave up thinking about editing the songs into into digestible um, chunks. Mm-hmm. Like the last two records, you've got a lot of seven and eight minute songs where there's it's not like those seven and eight minutes are packed full of massive dynamic changes, course, right? Yeah. There's a lot of eight verses where two would have been absolutely fine, and the same chugging mid tempo riff that makes me want to pass out. Um, and I think Saint Anger was the first record where they started to overindulge in that stuff. Whatever you say about Load and Reload, at least the songs are sort of bite size. Um, you know, they're like the Black Album in that they're mostly sort of, you know, three, four, five minutes and, you know, they're quite digestible, um, which is to me, if you can pack a lot into a short song, that's good songwriting uh, or it can be good songwriting. Um, if you just drone on for eight, ten minutes, you know, and people are poking their eyes out with boredom, uh, that's not going to serve any purpose. And that's what they've done since St. Anger, I think. That, that, that's fair and and one of the things i noticed in this book and loads of musical biographies that i read like i recently reread uh barney hoskins low side of the road which is his tom waits book you very rarely see lyrics being quoted in books is this a royalties thing why why is that yeah it's a legal thing yeah. you have to pay you have to pay the publisher a bit of money mm-hmm. as in, it's in the publisher of the music yeah yeah um, yeah and a lot of a lot of uh, uh publishers of books don't want to do that so uh yeah that's the reason for that and the book was obviously really well received, sold really well, as you say. And, you know, it is a fantastic tome. Absolutely. Um, the quote that I mentioned before on the front uh, from Lars, this is the, on the updated edition, saying very professional. I get asked to sign yeah. copies of this book all over the world. Um, yeah. how, how did that quote come about? I was interviewing him for Rhythm magazine, which is a drum magazine. Yeah. And um, at the start of the interview, I said, oh, hi, Lars, Joel McIver not expecting him to know my name, even though I'd interviewed him a few times. And he said, oh, yeah, you're the guy who wrote that book. Yeah? And I said, yeah. yeah, that's me. And he said, it looks very professional. I'm asked to sign copies of it all over the world, which was very kind of him. He didn't need to say that. No. Um, but yes, indeed he is. I've seen a lot of people send me films of him looking at it and looking at the the sort of flyleaf and seeing my name and going, ah, it's that guy again. <laughs> uh, but uh, And for quite some time, until Mick uh, wrote his book, which would have been, I don't know, about 2008, probably mm-hmm. 2010, it was the only large format book and it instantly went into loads of languages. So the poor guy, Lars, must have been presented with this thing uh, everywhere he went because there was no other option. Um, Mick did a good one. Paul Brannigan did a very good yes, uh, pair of yep. which I enjoyed. Um, Martin Popoff, Popoff done one that I haven't read, but I'm sure it's very good. No. Um, Neil Daniels did one, did he? There's loads, you know, there's, there's, there's a lots. few of them around now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know they all they all they all they all do the same job more or less. But uh, mine was first. It, it absolutely was. I mean, there could be another updated edition because obviously we've had all the hardwired stuff going from that. Like, have you right. listened? Have you listened to that record? What's your thoughts on it? Do you know, I just reviewed it. I, I had to write about it. There's a book coming. There's a reprint of a book which came out ages ago. I think it's just Metallica behind the songs, mm. uh, where each song is reviewed. And they asked me, the publisher asked me just to add a final chapter on Hardwired. So, um, yes, I listened to it uh, a couple of times when it came out. Thought there was some good stuff there. Didn't really listen to it afterwards. And then this publisher just the other day said, could you do a chapter on Hardwired? So I I re-listened to it um, and actually enjoyed it a bit more this time. I thought, um, apart from the (laughs) thing I mentioned before where they... Where they play for eight minutes, you know, and yeah. no one's like, look, man, four minutes would have been fine on this song. Uh, apart from that, there's lots of exciting moments and lots of good stuff, decent production. This is geeky, but one thing that annoys me is Greg Fiddleman's guitar production. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're a guitar player, but. Um, yeah, I am, yeah. 
well, you know how the distortion, um, the gain is really low on, mm. on any of Greg Fiddleman's. If you listen to Greg, sorry everyone who's listening to this who's thinking, what is this guy on about? But uh, when you overdrive your guitar tone and you get that heavy metal sound, uh, you can make it more or less distorted. In other words, more or less heavy, really, with the gain control. Fiddleman likes to have the gain really low, so the guitars are barely distorted. Um, and I think if you compare the hardwired guitar tone to Kill 'Em All or Puppets, it doesn't stand up. And it's the same with the Slayer arms that Fiddleman's done. So that always bugs me a little bit. That aside, the arrangements are a bit long and boring, but there are some exciting moments on hardwired. Um, whether the publisher will ask me to uh, stick another chapter on the end and then they'll reprint it, I don't know. If they do, I'll be very happy to do so, but um, we'll see. And interestingly, in your 2009 book, the hundred greatest metal guitarists. Yeah, you you yeah. placed um, old Metallica member Dave Mustaine at number one. Well, with good reason, you know. Mm. I mean, he is a phenomenal guitar player. Oh yeah. I mean, as I made clear in the um, part about him, there are some musicians, some guitar players who uh, have mastered a given technique better than him um, here and there, but there, there are no. Uh, it, it, I, I argued that there are no guitar players. Um, who had as great an all-round skill as him, who had been as influential as him. And that second part is key. It's not just about how technically good you are, because if that were the answer, it would be some unknown session musician somewhere. Sure. Um, it's about how influential uh, the player has been. And my reasoning was that Mustaine pushed uh, Metallica in a thrash metal direction, thus changing the course of heavy metal history, um, and indeed the course of heavy metal guitar playing. So as well as his skill... And the fact that Megadeth, of course, are a huge band who've done enormous, enormously yeah. good things. Um, that was why I put him at number one. And actually, he was incredibly pleased by that and, and talked a lot about that in the press. Um, I think partly because it gave him a little bit of vindication that he was hoping for uh, when compared to the chaps in Metallica, which was not... My intention was not to badmouth anybody. I, I gave both, though, both James and Kirk really high positions in the book um, because I think they're amazing. But to me... Mustaine just had it, you know, had a little bit of extra, extra something, a little bit of extra uh, sort of venom that, that took him to the number one spot. But believe me, of all the books I've written, that was the book that attracted the most uh, hate mail. Yeah. I say hate mail, it's yeah. kids in the basket, you know. Sure. But, sure. Um, you know, people say, dude, you asshole, I can't believe you. And, it, you know, I sort of laugh and always send a polite response. It's just and, really, uh, it's really courageous choice. And now that you've sort of explained it, I can totally understand why you went with that. And most people didn't bother to read it, right? They no, just saw, no, of course. Just yeah. Saw the, uh, the the thing. Went, well, no way, man, it's Dimebag. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, it's I owe me, or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, of course, would be arguable. But I yeah. mean, I remember interviewing him, and he said, "There's loads of stuff I can't do. Yeah. I can't, can't do. <laughs> I can't tap. Like, yeah. But, but he said specifically, he can't do sweeps. Can't do. And yeah. uh, you know, and not that that's, uh, but." you know, d diminishes from yeah. his amazing status as a guitarist. It's just his technique is, is not state of the art. Um, so I think he, I think I still put my number six or something, didn't mm -hmm. I? Something pretty amazing. And, and speaking of um, Mega Dave, you had a bit of an embarrassing moment with him. You, you asked him about Bob Rock, right? But it was completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really fucked up. Um, this is when I was a rookie journalist. And uh, this would have been about, yeah, it was on the Risk album. So it was 99. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I said... Um, Terrible album. I said, uh, oh, I, I, do you know what? You, if you've read it, then you probably know the, the circumstances. Yeah, it was something about Bob him Rock, shooting Desmond up in the Child. studio. Yeah. I did, yeah. I think it was Desmond Child. Don't sue me, Mr. Child, if, if right. I've got this wrong. I believe Child was quoted as saying that he'd seen Mustaine shoot drugs. Um, and I got the producer's name wrong and said, hey, man, 
Bob Rock said he saw you shooting drugs. Mm. And um, uh, just by mistake. Yeah, and yeah. Mustaine was obviously pissed off, but kept it together to his credit. So, well, no, I've never met Bob Rock. So um, I felt like a dick quite justifiably because that was really, really poor uh, research on my part. And um, But there you go. That's inexperience and uh, naivety for you. And you told, um, I mean, I wouldn't say he's one of my favourite musicians, but he's someone I definitely admire, his early work, Mike Oldfield, um, probably most famous from the uh, Tubular Bells Exorcist soundtrack. Um, right. You told him you didn't like his record to his face. Um, yeah, I think I did. Yeah. I said, um, God, where are you getting this from? This must be a really old interview. This is, yeah, yeah I, I literally searched I John McIver interview yeah, and just sort of went down. I managed, to, I managed to irritate him somehow because I said, this isn't that good, is it, Mike? But actually, I get on great with Mike Oldfield. I've written sure, a few yeah. minor notes for his records and stuff. And um, uh, I, yeah, again, this is such such ancient history. I remember mm-hmm. saying, I remember, this is really weird to think of now. Mm. He, had a, he had a computer game included in one of his albums. Right. And it didn't work for Macintosh. It only worked for Windows. And for oh. some reason, and I've no idea why I cared, but for some reason, in about 2001, I really took this to heart and said, why doesn't your game work for Macintosh? And he was sort of taken aback. And I remember very quickly thinking, why do you care? I mean, what, what's, anyway, so that mystifies me, but obviously obviously, it bothered me at the time. Yeah, yeah. And um, John Bon Jovi was a tough interview. Yeah, strange man, really. I mean, mm. I, I, I wondered if I'd just been really crap at interviewing him because he gave me such a sort of... Um, uh, an unenthusiastic response, but uh, subsequently, having seen him on TV and seen him do other interviews, I think he just doesn't like human beings very much. <laughs> and so it was a it was a pretty weak interview that one. Yeah, I've got a write up of it somewhere, and um, he definitely didn't like my questions or me. Yeah. Uh, made and made it clear that he was just there, sort of because his manager had made him. But you know, most people are not like that. Most most um, interviewees are really friendly, and yeah. uh, because they're, because they're there by mutual agreement. Um, that, that what they're doing is worth writing about so therefore the dynamic is friendly um but i guess i mean again I, you know what i said earlier i wouldn't have criticized metallica so hard now if i'd been writing that book that's just part of mellowing into middle age isn't it you understand that people get tired and people have off days and they're not on form and uh and and that uh, you know younger more aggressive naive people will criticize them for that but actually that's probably not fair um, and it's something I've done a little bit of in my life, but not too much, considering you know, it could have been worse. And uh, as we said briefly before, you're an edit, you're the the editor of Base Magazine, which is really really yeah. cool. Like as a to clarify, there yeah. is a magazine called Base. I'm not the editor of that one. I'm the editor of two magazines, one called Base Guitar, Base Guitar, okay, one called Base Player. Okay. I mean, I, I play guitar myself, and I yeah. used to get more magazines when I was younger. I used to, I used to love Total Guitar when oh, I was in my that, teens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great magazine. And then as I got older, I got Guitar Techniques, and then I realized I couldn't play half the things in fucking Guitar Techniques, so I just sort of read it myself. Like, what's the content of Bass Guitar Magazine? Is it more interviews, more lessons? or? Uh, it's all that. It's um, the uh, first half of the mag is interviews with the bass celebs. Uh, or alternatively, sort of, you know, young up-and-coming bass players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is a review section where we uh, road test various bass guitars, bass amps, and bass effects. And then there's a big old 12-page uh, lessons section at the end for beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And that's bass guitar and bass player, which is the American equivalent. Okay, okay, awesome. And- so I do that every four weeks, an issue of that, and I've been doing it for seven years. And you also, alongside you know writing the straight biographies yourself, you you co-author stuff with rock stars. Yeah, yeah? Oh, that's a lot of fun. There, let me see if I can remember them all. I did uh, one with Glenn Hughes, uh, wow. he of Deep Purple, actually yeah. Deep Purple, lovely man, good friend of mine. 
Um, that came out ages ago in something like, what, 2011, I think? Mm. Um, then I did two that came out in 2013. The first was with David Ellison of Megadeth. Legend. Um, another brilliant bloke. Mm. Um, Alice Cooper did the foreword. And then another book with Max Cavalera, who had been in Sepultura yep, and is yep. now in Soul Floor, yep. And um, Dave Grohl did the foreword to that one. Um, which was brilliant because Grohl was a big fan of Sepultura and of Roots in particular, mm-hmm. the Roots are. Um, then I did one um, with Glenn Matlock, the bass player with the Sex Pistols, mm-hmm. uh, and another one with Woody Woodmansey, who was the drummer in the Spiders from Mars, David Bowie's band, uh, from whatever, 72 to 75. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've just done one now with John Mayall, the blues musician. The blues breaker. That's the one who had Eric Clapton in his first band, so that's coming out later this year. And then, on a slightly different, in a slightly different way, rather than co-writing someone's autobiography, I wrote two official biographies. Um, the first one with Cannibal Corpse, the death metal band, and the second one with Thunder, the British rock band. Yes. So, yeah. So I've done probably twenty something, twenty-two books of my own, and six or seven or eight in collaboration with other people. It's a lot of fun. And that that co-authoring process, like, how does that work? Do you just meet up for a few long drinking sessions and then go over the... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, You uh, interview someone about their life, um, and that can vary um, uh, as to how long it takes. With Glenn Hughes, I did 60 hours. Mm. Uh, With other guys, it was more like 30. And with Woody Woodmansey, I think we had something like five long lunches um uh not not boozy ones actually uh he's sober and i was driving all the time um <laughs> pretty much everyone i've worked with apart from thunder and cannibal um are sober actually they're not they're not drinking people mm-hmm. um so uh yes it's more you know you knuckle down you you get your recorder rolling um you get 30 to 60 hours worth of interview which as you know is a lot of transcription mm-hmm. um and you turn that into a book for them to approve and then you hand it into the publisher, and if you're if you have a decent agent, that's good. They will get you a publishing deal, um, and then off it goes, and you watch it go into translation, and hopefully, um, optioned for some sort of dramatic, you know, film or TV uh, adaptation, which is always good as well. Um, so that's how it works. You make these things happen, these books, and they sort of take on a life of their own, and and, and fly off and do things. You know, they appear in different parts of the world, or. or well, as I've just said, they get adapted for other media. So it's um, like you, you're one of the guys now. Like, you know, if Glenn Matlock goes and says, I want to write a biography, they'll put him in Joel McIver's direction. Or... Well, word of mouth happens, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, there are lots and lots of writers who are senior to me. They've done more stuff and they have, have written um, more and perhaps better books. Um, so uh, I wouldn't say that I'm at the very, very top of my game because I'm not. But at the same time, there's a small number of us who are the go-to people for people who want to do books. Um uh, and yeah, the same with journalism, the same with, you know, yeah. I compile a lot of albums for record companies as well. So that's, that's, you just get known for stuff, you know, and if you, if you manage to stick around a couple of decades and you haven't let people down and you've generally been approachable and your communications are good, um, and you're not an idiot, then people will like to work with you because you're, you're manageable, you know, you, you can be worked with, um, which is, uh, my, my top bit of advice to anyone who's listening and thinking of, uh, getting into this crazy industry and who would be the dream email to enter the inbox like they want you to help write their biography well it would have been prince but unfortunately oh my god yeah um i I saw that you put sign of the times in one of your favorite albums and that is an incredible record oh man 
you know, Prince's Hot thing. Imperial... Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love that song. Love Prince's that song. Imperial phase, you know, yeah. of what should we say, eighty three to ninety one, that kind of time. Mm. I, I, I couldn't stop listening to him. I thought it, it was incredible. It is. Uh, would have been nice and probably a little bit surreal to work with him. <laughs> yeah. Um, given now, I don't really have a dream musician who I'd like to work with now, but uh, there are certainly some uh, artists, filmmakers, and politicians that'd be interesting to work with. Mm. And what filmmakers? Oh, Martin Scorsese would be good for, start, for right, starters. Right, I mean, someone, I mean, not not to be too, like, we're British, it's got to be British, but there needs to be a good Shane Meadows book, I think. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's a contender. Mm-hmm. I think he's quite an important, you know, you can launch, etc. You want to get a cracking on that? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should reach out to him. Maybe he's a, a closet a closet Metallica fan. Um, so as we always do on the show, um, open it up to the Patreon. Of course, you can support Alpha Metallica. Patreon.com forward slash Alpha Metallica. Um, if you want to give back to the show, get access to episodes like this weeks before they go out on air. And uh, loads of people had loads of questions for you, Joel. So we just got a few quick fire right. questions here. A few from Kevin Van Dam, who's a great friend of the show. He says, first of all, what got you into writing? Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I'll try not to take too long over it. Um, it was really just a flash of inspiration. I was a teacher and I just thought, God, I can't do this forever. Mm. Um, and I, uh, enjoyed writing about stuff. I had opinions that I wanted to express and I just gave it a shot and it paid off. Um, so no, I don't have any, um, any, any major insights there. It was Mm. just something that seemed like a lot of fun to do. What was your favorite book to write? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I really enjoyed writing my Slayer book, I have to say. I had so much fun writing that. Um, but actually, it's about time we mentioned this. Uh, I wrote a book about Cliff Burton. Yes. And that one, uh, it was called To Live Is To Die, um, after the song he, he wrote for Justice, mm-hmm. for Injustice Roll. Um, and that was a book that I really, you know how you create something, right? You, if, you, if you work on projects, sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't, sometimes they work out better than you expected. The Cliff book, all the stars aligned for that. So the answer to this question is that one, um, because people, like I said before, just queued up to be interviewed. Um, I interviewed people who'd never been interviewed before, specifically the members of Trauma. Then you had Steve Doherty. Oh, my God. You interviewed Trauma. I need to get this book. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Um, yeah. God. Uh, um, uh, Kirk Hammett did the foreword, which, yeah, was, a, which was amazing up. to me. Um, uh, Frank Bellow did the afterword. He's the bass player in Anthrax. Mm-hmm. did the afterword to the latest edition of the book. Um, it did it did incredibly well because there's so much affection for him. You know, people wrote to me and said, I cried when I read your book. And, well, that wasn't my intention. My intention was certainly for them to emotionally understand the story of Cliff. Um, so that, I think, is the one that's worked out best and that I had the most fun working on because people were so keen to help. You know, people just, just wanted to express their love and sadness about Cliff. So that one, I think, is, is the answer to that question. Yeah, he's, he was 24 when he passed, and his uh, his father celebrated his 94th birthday just the other day, I believe. So you know, Ray Burton. what we have to remember is that um, Ray lost his oldest son as well. Um, yes, yeah, he did. Cliff's brother died of, uh, I believe, a brain hemorrhage mm-hmm. uh, when himself was 15. So to lose two sons, his wife also died a few years ago. Yes, he still Jan, has yeah. daughter, He still has his daughter, Connie. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, and but, but I hope he's sustained a lot by by the Metallica fan base, and I know Metallica themselves look after him. So, yeah. Kevin asks, "What's the worst part of writing these kinds of books?" I'm not sure there is a worst part no. really. Um, I, I enjoy the whole process. It's quite a uh, it's it's a 
it's a nice bit of self-indulgent time, you know, um, of working on something when you, when, if like me, you have lots of other projects that are ongoing. Um, yeah, there isn't really a worse part. Uh, no. I, I, am generally quite good at hitting deadlines. I would say that if, if I, if a deadline is coming, you know, that can be a bit stressful, but again, that's something that you can manage. Has the adage never meet your heroes ever applied when writing about Metallica or any other band? Not specifically about Metallica. No. Um, I've met, um, I've met them all on many occasions. Um, they were without Metallica. I can tell you are absolutely stand up guys, at least to the press, right? Because you've got to remember, I've met them as a journalist, sure. uh, uh, as opposed to a guy walking down the street, or you know, or indeed someone who's written books about them. Um, so it was. Uh, so no, that, that no, I've got a lot of time and respect. I'll, I'll always, I'll never turn down an interview with a member of Metallica. They're great, great guys. The one I know best is Rob Trujillo. Um, obviously, because of, of of working on the base magazines, he's I've met yes, him. of course, yep. spent a lot of time with that guy, um, and he's brilliant. And um, so, never meet your heroes. No, I've met a lot of my heroes. I've met all of Black Sabbath. Um, oh. I've met all of Slayer many, many times, and they're all just brilliant, brilliant people. Um, uh, you know, the only people I've met who I didn't particularly like were people I didn't particularly care about, so it didn't, didn't worry me. Sure, sure. Shout out John Bon Jovi there. Um, well, again, as I was just saying, in my tolerant old age, yeah, you know, yeah. he was just tired, pissed off of, of talking course. to bloody journalists, asking him about, you know, asking him stupid questions. <laughs> and we sort of covered this before. Kevin asks, is there a band artist you haven't written about that you would like to? Um, that's a great question. I should have thought about that. Um, not really, no. I've pretty much written about everyone at this point as a journalist or an author um, because I've written several million words now in various magazines as well. So, no, I'd say everyone's pretty much been covered. Uh, as I said before, I think it's probably time to start talking about politicians, sports yep. people, you know, uh, interesting artists of, of one kind or another. And Dave now asking, uh, I don't know if you'll answer this, what's the most surprising thing that you know about Lars? Hmm, do I know anything surprising? Tough question, yeah, I mean. I mean, I, yeah, he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty transparent, funny enough, about yeah. what he will and will not say. So he tends not to unleash revelations on people. Um, no, I wish I had some juicy gossip for you there. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to him once and saying, look, you ever going to do a book? And he said, I can't do a book because I know where too many bodies are buried. Right. Um, which is which is you know a semi flippant thing to say, but at the same yeah. time he's absolutely right. So for sure, there's lots of interesting things going on with that guy that people don't know. Um, but I'm beyond the point where I would want to dig those things out. You know, he has his right to a private life. I mean that um, that, that Lars memoir that would be like a Keith Richards lifestyle release, wouldn't it? Like I think so, yeah, I think that could be an awful lot of fun. I yeah. have to say, uh, I hope he does one. Um, and if he does, it won't be. If if Lars does a book, it will be the equivalent of the Lulu album. <laughs> be, no, no, I, I mean that in an entirely positive way. Right, it right, will right. Be an artistically yes. courageous to do that deviates massively from the standard sort of memoir format. Definitely, you know? he'll talk about his love of art and photography and music in quite cerebral terms, um, which is how I look at Lulu. I don't love listening to it, but I do admire the artistic uh, direction that it took. Um, so no, that could be really interesting. I hope mm. he does it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be like um, remember Sean Connery brought his autobiography out about ten years ago, and it was mm. criticised because it's mostly a history of Scotland. Like it's not, a, it's not about him. <laughs> and maybe you know, for Lars, it'd be a history of the new wave of British heavy metal. I don't think it would right. necessarily be. Yeah, uh, be yeah about I don't know if him. read Bruce Dickinson's book, but it was mostly about sword fighting and airplanes. Yeah, yeah. What does this button do, or whatever it was called? That's yeah, the there, there wasn't enough maiden yeah, in it. I quite liked it. it yeah, was it was good. Didn't go particularly deep into. Uh, 
you know, you, that, that there are, I've, I've, as, as a writer of people's autobiographies, which I know is a difficult concept to grasp, mm. um, I spend a lot of time reading other people's autobiographies. And some of them, what I've come to learn is that the person writing the book needs to give themselves emotionally to the reader in quite a courageous, open way. Um, or there's no connection made. So, mm. you know, an example of a book, two books that didn't really work for me. One was Eric Clapton's um, and one was uh, Anthony from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, both of which spoke in a very kind of repressed, introverted, ungiving kind of way to the reader. Not not in a, a sort of mean way, but in a, in a way that was kind of cautious and didn't really throw open the doors. Um, and that, as a result, I thought they were quite unsatisfying reads. So... I, I imagine someone like Lars would, would open up reasonably well because he has that sort of European, middle-class, educated, cultured uh, approach, which, again, is you know, the, the, the basis of another conversation. But his whole European outlook really informs Metallica in an interesting way, I think, because they're so American in every other way. Dave also asking, what's your favourite cover by Metallica? Oh, man, it's... Um, yeah, I was writing about this the other day. It's probably... Um, Anything off the Garage Days EP. Okay. Uh, Help, Helpless is such Helpless an is great. Song. Still yeah. listen to it now. Um, I was just writing, actually, there's a website called The Quietus that you might be familiar yes, with. Yes, yeah. Well, they've just today got a big feature on, of uh, uh, their writer's favourite Metallica songs. Oh, that's and I cool. Did, I didn't know that. I did a, yeah. did a thing on um, Crash Course and Brain Surgery. And uh, the point I was making was that Metallica are the, are the heavy metal covers band par excellence. They, they're, they're like Jimi Hendrix in that they take a fairly sort of mundane rock song and turn it into a sort of precision engineered thing of beauty, you know. Um, and they did that with Crash Course and Brain Surgery, which was this incredibly mundane old tune um, beforehand. So probably that one. Yeah, I mean, I've got time for a lot of their stuff. There's a lot of good quality on that Garage Days album, the, the later uh, double album of stuff. Um, I like Bread Fan, actually. That's a killer song. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, they they rarely put a foot wrong. I didn't think their version of Stone Cold Crazy was as good as Queen's original. I agree. And that, that, that was the first time they had done a cover which didn't match up to the original, actually. But that says a lot because they'd already done a, a good dozen covers by then. Yeah, for those listening on the quietest, Metallica Beyond the Beyond the Hits is what it's called. Joel is there yeah. with a few of, with, with quite a few of us actually. All in my hands is written about bleeding me, disposable heroes, Junior Dad, the closer from Lulu, which yeah, I, I love. love. I, I wouldn't listen to any of Lulu apart from uh, I think it's called Mistress Dread, isn't it? The, Mistress the, Dread, yeah, we did that recently. But no, the final song, Junior Dad, is just great. It's where yeah. it all starts to make sense mm-hmm. uh, because you you listen to it, you go, okay, right, I can relate to this. What Lou Reed is saying rather than singing, actually starts to make, make complete aesthetic sense in the context of the record. Um, and that whole back end, that 10-minute orchestral section, you can just lose yourself in that. Absolutely. Uh, all it is is a couple of, is a, is a small uh, chamber quintet or something, um, moving away from and then resolving towards a dominant chord. And it's so beautifully done, and it just goes on for ages, which is exactly what I want. Dave also says, who's your favourite bass player? Of all time. Mm. Crikey. Um, Tough. Steve Harris is up there. Yes, what a legend. Uh, Cliff obviously is up there. Um, Jaco Pastorius, the mm-hmm. jazz bassist, Stanley Clark, yep. Stuart Ham, David Ellefson. Stuart Frank- Ham, yeah, from uh, Joe Cetroni's band, amongst other things. Yeah, right? I love yeah. He's a good friend of mine. Um, Frank Bellow from Anthrax has this incredibly melodic finger style, um, which is amazing. Les Claypool uh, from Primus, Glenn Hughes. Um, Susie Quattro uh, oh god there's loads of amazing people um, yeah. 
yeah. Have a look at this. <laughs> have a look at the magazine. Yeah, yeah. Whoever's on the cover, that's the answer. <laughs> and the final set of questions comes from uh, Aurelie Moreau, who is a uh, really good friend of the show. He says, um, "Do you always meet the artist and band members before writing the book? Is it mandatory for you?" Um, you mean if it's like a, an unauthorized book? I so guess. Like, I guess so. Like that's why. Machine head or no, yeah. not always. No, the answer is no. It's not mandatory, and no, not always. But uh, over the course of my career as a journalist, there aren't many people that I haven't met that I've subsequently or previously done books about because you you kind of cross paths with these people. Um, I prefer to meet them and talk to them and know them, uh, ideally in a friendly way beforehand. But no, it's not mandatory. But this this is a, a point I often make. If you write an unauthorized book about a band, that doesn't mean it's a bad book in much the same way that an authorized book about a band doesn't mean that it's a good book, yeah. right? Uh, if you write an unauthorized story about someone, then it's not subject to the approval of them or their management, which means that you have an editorial independence um, and you can you can say things that you would not be able to get away with if it was subject to their approval, um, which gives you greater freedom and, and a greater critical range. So, um, yes, I just want to make that clear that when I say I've done, like, you know, oh, I don't know, 15 unauthorized books, doesn't mean they're bad. Far yeah. from it. It means, it means they're independent, you know. Um, but at the same time, I think I think I, I prefer to do authorized books or books that are actually with people, which are obviously by definition authorized, um, because then you get deep into their head and it's it's a more uh, enjoyable experience. Which books were the easiest, Aurelion wrote, Aurelion wrote, and the hardest to write? Uh, the easiest book was probably the uh, Metallica book because it, 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 it was the book that I had dreamed of writing, yeah. you know. When, when I began as a writer, um, I, uh, I, I only really wanted to do a Metallica book and a Slayer book, and then I would have stopped. But, but the deals kept coming in. <laughs> the hardest ones to write were ones where I wasn't that motivated by the content. So I wrote one um, about the Sex Pistols, actually. This is not the later Glenn Matlock book that I did with Glenn, which was great. Uh, this was a book about the great rock and roll swindle, which was the Sex Pistols film. Yes. I wasn't particularly motivated by the content. Um, uh, uh, and it's not a bad book but it's, it wasn't great and it was quite hard to write because I wasn't that interested in what I was writing uh, and then secondly I did the f- I've written two Black Sabbath books and the first one was so massive 175,000 words oh. and I, my time management wasn't great on that one I, uh, I still had something like 50,000 words to go with a couple of months towards the deadline so it's not so much the content which was tricky it was the length of the book getting it done on deadline was really hard um, just because of my own really crap time management so that one was difficult too alright well um, yeah, this has been great Joel I really appreciate your time Thank coming you. to talk about this and again I want to urge people if they have not yet picked up Justice for All The Truth About Metallica it is a, a, you know, a fantastic edition and really really well written as well and it just packed full of information and I love the fact how you'd explain where the band would go on tour you'd be like they hit this city and this city and then they went here and then this happened and like you know for me doing this show there was so much information that I could follow up on and it's yeah. really really appreciated um is there any sort of social media how do people get in touch with you how do people follow your work yeah I have public pages on Facebook and on Twitter and that's pretty much it. Uh, I don't have a website anymore because there's just no point. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, those are the places to find me. And uh, without giving away spoilers, what's next? What Anything coming out in 2019? Well, John Mayall's book is coming out, yes. which I mentioned earlier. That's coming out fairly soon. And then after that, there will be uh, three books, which are the autobiographies of uh, musicians that you will have heard of quite okay. famously. 
Okay, cool. Well, um, as always, guys, follow us at MetallicaPod on Twitter. Get in touch with me, MetallicaPod at gmail.com if you want to come on and review a song. In the next month, we have Mistress Dread, Minus Human, The More I See, and Moth Into Flame coming up. You can support us on Patreon. You can leave a review on iTunes. Uh, this has been Tom, Alf Metallica. Joel, thank you again. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Tom. I appreciate it.